everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of March 3rd, 2022. I'm Charles Hain. I'm here with Editor-in-Chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Good morning. I'm here with filmmaker Gigi Hawkins. Hello. I'm here with Jason Levine, Principal Director and Creative Cloud Evangelist at Adobe. This week on the No Film School podcast, our lead story, we're going to have a brief discussion about what's going on in Ukraine. There's not a lot for filmmakers to say, but there's some filmmaker-relevant stuff that we can dive in with. After that, we're going to be talking with Jason Levine a little bit from Adobe about some upcoming masterclass trainings. We're going to be then moving into some tech news and wrapping it all up with a discussion of the Oscars, which seem incredibly trivial compared to a European land war. But we're a filmmaking podcast, so we got to talk about the Oscars. That's this week <laughs> on the New Film School podcast. First up, this week on the No Film School podcast, there's not a tremendous amount to say about Ukraine in filmmaking. You know, if if you are a Twitter person, I just want to give a shout out to Kimberly St. Julian Varnas and Terrell Jermaine Starr. They're two sort of Ukraine experts. One is uh, Terrell James Starr is on the ground right now, and they're great. I've been getting a whole lot of great, wonderful information out of them in the last couple of days. And it's been, I mean, obviously we're all, you're either like obsessively avoiding it or obsessively thinking and reading about it are the two camps of Ukraine discourse right now. But the thing I did want to say is that one responsibility filmmakers have right now is we should know a little bit about bullshit video. And there is a lot going around, frankly, on both sides. I mean, tremendous amount of stuff going around that's bullshit Russian propaganda. Let's say bullshit Russian government propaganda, because it's not like Russian civilians doing this. So right. there's some bullshit Russian government propaganda going around, like provocation videos and stuff. But there's also, and most of this, I think, is just the internet being crazy, but there's even some stuff that's like pro-Ukraine that's pretty suspect. There's been some like ghost of Ukraine memes and stuff that mm. is being circulated where I'm like, that, that, that looks fake to me. So I just want to say, as filmmakers, I think we know a little bit more, like, trust your gut instinct about video content and whether or not it seems right. Because a lot of times, if you're like, ah, oh, that VFX looks bad, or like, I think I can see the composite there, or that video looks kind of old, or like checking the metadata. Like one thing that happened with all of this, Russian government sources were sharing some videos that were like, they were saying it was shot one day, but they were actually shot 10 days earlier. And all CNN had to do was check the metadata for when they were shot. And like, uh -huh. we're filmmakers, we know how to check metadata. So like, I think one thing filmmakers can do right now is try and be responsible actors as things are shared and propagate around. I mean, that's that's sort of my take on how we, wh where our expertise leads us. And I hear Sean Penn is there doing a documentary. Yeah, Sean Penn is there doing a documentary. My question is, what is the document? Like, when did he get there? Does, do you guys have any details about what he's doing? Because I've seen the pictures, but I am curious if, if it was like an emergency, like, hey, let's get out there immediately on the ground and, and grab some cameras because that was a very quick response, I would say, if that was the case. Do you guys know anything specific about that? I mean, I think Sean Penn is ready to go at all times. Just <laughs> <laughs> give me a pack of American spirits. I'm there. <laughs> I Yeah, I would like to do a little more research on Sean Penn. Um, yeah, my only Sean Penn relevant story is I was in a restaurant once with Sean Penn and a suspiciously young woman, and my date was like, please let that be his daughter. Please let that be his daughter. And she Googled him, and it was his daughter, and we oh, were relieved. Good. Yeah, it was one of those Hollywood moments where we were like, oh, I didn't know that Sean Penn had a daughter in her, her 20s, but he does. And they were out to dinner, and it was nice. 
So that is the extent of my Sean Penn contribution to this conversation. He may be married to Vincent D'Onofrio's daughter, which is weird. So I don't know if it's entirely fair to say that he's not <laughs> dating younger women. But All I'm going to say is in that particular moment, that yes. one dinner in Venice was Sean Penn and his daughter. That is as far as I'm going to go. Um, I'm, but, I am curious what it what he's going, like what the immediate... We're so used to watching reactions to what's going on and, and we're see, we're, we have access to video and film of so quickly. And Charles, to your point about, you know, assessing it and thinking critically about what we're seeing and making sure that it isn't bullshit. But the other thing that's interesting and thinking about like as a history, aspiring history buff, I used to teach high school history, like thinking of the context of the content that's being put out and, you know, Sean Penn will be making this documentary. We'll probably see it in a year to two years from now, but even the, the fictional stuff that's coming out, what some of the most interesting movies to watch for me are, you know, the films that came out of Europe immediately following uh, World War II, like Germany year zero, where it's like people using film to try and understand and try and make sense of what's going on. And we're going to be getting and seeing such a like immediate reaction of people trying to make sense of that. So I'm curious like what that will be like and, and how people will choose to tell stories around, you know, this horrible thing that's happening. You know, you bring up a really good point that whether it's Sean Penn or not, and I do have some more details. So Sean Penn actually started prepping for this last November. So he's sort of been on the story and in the, the realm of thinking about it in, in before this took place. And he specifically said, Ukraine is the tip of the spear for the democratic embrace of our dreams. If we allow it to fight alone, our soul as America is lost. And what that reminds me of is World War II. And let's like, this is the first Western Euro or European land invasion, hostile invasion without provocation since 1939, right? We have this, this is a very important international event, historical event. And, and the, the precedent for it is dramatic and scary. And the circumstances are terrifying and the implications massive. So if you aren't following it or you aren't thinking about all of that, like this is a very, very big deal. And there's a lot, the history of the, of that region of Ukraine is extremely complex. Why is that always the case? But that's just true. So, and I'm no expert, so I'm not going to start talking about the battle, battling over that area and the history there. But what I, all of this just to say, in World War II, one of the ways that the Western powers became more involved or started to become more involved was through media, at the time radio. Edward R. Murrow, who's a famous radio presence and newsman, was instrumental in reporting from London about what was happening there while London, uh, England was under attack from the Nazis and, and Hitler. And I think that that sort of, there, there, is, there is a lot of making movies doesn't make you a hero. You know, like that, having a camera, but, but what you pointed at and how you craft narrative and media, especially nowadays when you mm -hmm. don't, when access is easier for Murrow, it was very, very hard to be very unique for an individual to be in that position where he could exercise that power to reach that many people through the radio. There are so many more ways we can't even go into it. It's the, you know, the issue of our time is how many ways there are to communicate with one another. So in a way, it's, it's a lot easier. In another way, it's a lot easier to fool people or lie, as Charles mentioned at the mm -hmm. top. So I think we're in a really 
you know, it's a pivotal historical moment. And there's a really interesting role that media and content plays in all of that. And the responsibility is massive. I also think the other thing that I think about this in terms of filmmaking, and it's really interesting that you guys bring up World War II, because I was thinking about World War II a lot as well, is that filmmaking used to require a lot of technical expertise, Mm -hmm. like exposing properly and getting it in focus and like getting it through the post and getting it printed. And like, it was very technically complicated. So there was a relatively small amount of the population that had the skill to make stuff. And then that population was then expected to sort of like travel to places to document what's happening there, combining that filmmaking skill with local expertise. But I think we're, and I think Sean Penn is really like channeling that mid 20th century American masculine, I'm going to wear a leather jacket and travel to Castro's Cuba and interview Castro. And I'm going to try and interview El Chapo and I'm going to go to Haiti. And it's like, that is a model of the world, but I think it's like, you know, a fading model. Like I think we're moving to this really interesting place where filmmaking skills are frankly easier to acquire. And as such, I'm more interested in people who like, I'm more like the two people I just mentioned who I follow on Twitter, like they're, they both clearly have a tremendous knowledge about the area. Like they are deeply involved in understanding what is going on in Ukraine. One of them's a PhD student in like, you know, deep knowledge combined with those technical skills and like specifically in, you know, this Ukraine thing, like I was just this morning watching, I don't have TikTok, but somebody posted on Twitter, like a, a TikTok of like a Ukrainian TikTok star in like athleisure being like, I found this abandoned Russian vessel and we're going to go on a joyride. And like, it was really well shot. There were like push-ins and pull-outs and the editing was, had good pace. And I was like, like, these are all of the same filmmaking skills that all of those people, you know, all the big, like, the, the filmmaking was more sophisticated than some of the stuff you see done by those big Hollywood directors doing World War II docs wow. because the technology makes it so easy. And it's just like, you know, Ukraine TikTok star going on a joyride in an abandoned uh, Russian APV, APC. And you're like, yeah. like, it's kind of amazing to watch that skill go everywhere so that then the person who's there and has the deep knowledge can be like, go with me. I don't know. I think it's an interesting yeah. change. You're referencing essentially the the five came back, a story of Hollywood in the Second World War, which was also made into a movie, but is is a book about the the five directors from Hollywood that were essentially drafted to cover World War II. And part of it is like it would be like if we said today, uh, we need Paul Thomas Anderson and Steven Spielberg and a couple like three, three <laughs> other guys to go do this. We can't just it can't be people on the ground and it's not gonna be Sean Penn. It's gonna be our greatest director. And one of the, that book is such a good read. I highly recommend it right now, especially if you love filmmaking and you love Hollywood history, movie history, all this stuff. But there's a fascinating thing about that. I believe that it was John Houston who made one of the ones he made that was banned of the, one of the movies he put oh. together doing it was all about PTSD and shell shock. And oh, it, yeah. was, it served as a major inspiration for the aforementioned Paul Thomas Anderson when doing the master because it's, and that you can find that on YouTube. I don't remember the name of it, but if you search Google search, John Houston, shell shock, uh, world war two movie, you'll find it. It's amazing. But they, they didn't really want people to tell the kinds of story, the Frank, right. Hey, here's the reality of it. Those guys were going over there to do what the United States wanted them to do, which is part of what we're also talking about here, which is part of why, you know, kudos to Sean Penn for, strapping on the leather jacket and heading over. But I agree, Charles, like we want people who are going to be unfiltered and and do the kind of filmmaking everyone can do, 
on the ground. I mean, I want both. I'm not saying there's no place for the mid-century American male. I'm just saying I want that to be like one part of a massive palette of media creation about this. Like, I'd be really curious about P.T. Anderson's view from the ground right now. Like, you know. Yeah, uh, that's it, true. But like, I just want it all. And I, I'm excited that we're now in a period where we get it all, where we have the capability to have sort of both. But I think we're pivoting to a world where we're going to see more and more of the people with the actual deep knowledge about the thing, as opposed to people who are like, I'm here to acquire deep knowledge about the thing, please. Like, and I think it's an interesting pivot. I think you can also go learn, like, I'm working on a project now this summer about a job that I've never done. So I'm trying to learn as much as I can about it. Like, I, like, hopefully there's still a place for things that we're learning about in our storytelling. Like, I don't think, I don't think P.T. Anderson should only be allowed to make movies about Southern California. Although his movies about Southern <laughs> He's California. He's pretty good are, at it, though. We do love yes, really like, cow movies. But his movie about London, Phantom Thread, also rocked. Like, it was legit. So, like, you know, it's he like I I'm I'm open to both. I'm I would be really into a PT Anderson on the ground Kiev doc. But and we uh, know he knows Sean Penn, so this could happen. Oh, you're right. They could totally be going there together. I I and I'll probably watch the Sean Penn thing because I bet it will have a certain Gonzo energy to it because he is really sort of like a bastion of that period in history and trying to keep it going. That like you know, adventuresomeness. But it's it's just interesting to think about. I love how all of the skills that we talk about here all the time are everywhere and that there's, you know, it's a much it's a much broader world in terms of filmmaking skills. And yeah, it's like the other one, I mean, I'm sure everybody's already seen this one too, of the tractor pulling away a Russian vehicle, which is like super great. That makes me super happy. Like apparently some Russians like ran out of gas in a vehicle and left it. And so a tractor stole it, which like... <laughs> It's just so it's just like, uh, you know, obviously it is a terrible situation and it is awful, but you know, TikTok. Your career in virtual production starts here and now. Earn your spot on tomorrow's set with Synapse Virtual Production in LA by enrolling in RIT's immersive 10-day course this June. An exclusive experience in LA, you'll get the foundation you need to grow your career in a virtual production studio the kind behind the groundbreaking effects seen in Disney's The Mandalorian and Marvel's Avenger films, limited seats are available. Learn more and enroll today at vpritcertified.education. That's vp.ritcertified.education. Tomorrow, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Ruben! Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version. With four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tomorrow, only on Disney+. Plus. Moving on to less heavy subjects. In tech news, I can't believe we're pivoting to tech news. But this feels like, remember March of 2020 when we were like, all right, there's yes. a pandemic, and now there's a new camera. But we we soldier on doing the thing we know how to do. Well, um, I mean, tech- I, the segue is actually that like, hey, if you continue to learn about what your tools are available to you, it's easier to be the person on the ground who tells whatever story is happening around them, right? Yeah. And actually, the thing I'm about to pivot to is a thing that like, probably useful in this scenario if you point it down. If you point it up, it'll just make you a target. Um, so in tech news, 
there's a very bright LED that's like affordable for indies hitting the market. Aperture has dropped the 1200D Pro, and I'm just like very excited. So full disclosure, I got to play with this for a month shooting a new thing that's coming from No Film School that you guys will hear more about soon. Also full disclosure, I've been a nerd for like high output LEDs that you could wall plug for a while. Like my favorite thing to do, usually if I go to things like NAB or any of those big trade shows, I, I, I never start on the main hall or the main stretch. If I'm at something like Cinegear, I always try and go to the side hall first because those are where all the weird vendors are. And I'm always, mm. you know, and so for the last couple of years, I've always been like, what's the biggest LED you can wall plug? And there was a crazy, there was a huge thing a couple of years ago from a company called Bezbit, B-E-Z-B-T, I think it was, but they never imported it to North America and wasn't very robust. So I never actually got to play with one. And then there've been a few others that I've been like almost willing to pull the trigger on, like this crazy 6K from South Korea that was super bright, but none of them were like quite ready to play. And Aperture has finally dropped a 1200D Pro that is like, oh, okay, you're like ready to play. You're like ready to work. Like this will integrate into your workflows. I love it because it puts out like an incredible amount of light for still being wall pluggable. It's a big, heavy unit. You need a junior stand. This is not something you're going to put on a baby stand. But like, you know, I'm just going to go back. I've worked on so many jobs where I wanted a generator and there wasn't a budget. I've worked on like so many music videos where, you know, all right, it's a $20,000 music video and we've got one day of shooting and a generator 750 and we just can't afford it. I just want to throw out there, that the not to mention with the generator, the small footprint projects. The problem I always had was if you have a generator, it opens you up to all kinds of other issues permitting wise. You can't just bring a generator mm. anywhere and, you, and you're going to yes. bother people and make noise and you're going to need a permit and there's going to be a fire issue, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So that's, thank you for reminding me that when the producers were pushing back, it wasn't always a money issue. Cause I'd be like, no, just a generator. Like I'll get a deal on one. And they're like, no, but it's like so many other things I can't give you a generator for. But like, I think about like some of those jobs I've done where I'm like, oh, like these, there's, they're going to sell for about four grand, which means they're going to rent for about like probably 300 a day. So if I'm doing a weekend for like, I could get like three of them for 900 bucks. And then like, let's say I'm shooting like a night exterior on an alley. I could just like go to like three bars and say, Hey, can I run one cable? into your bar every 50 feet or something and like light up this big night exterior in a way that like, I, I don't need a generator. I don't need a lot of crazy permits. I I've got a lot of power efficiency. I'm just super excited that these are like hitting the street. You know, they're, they're just D they're just daylight. They're not X. They don't switch between daylight and tungsten, but that's okay. Cause it's going to give you more output. They're really great with the soft bag. This thing I was shooting in January, we put them through, there's a big light dome 150, which is like, they're sort of like big six foot across light dome. And uh, we, we put it through that and it was just like big, beautiful, soft, punchy, high output light. If you've used a lot of aperture stuff in the past, you're used to them always having a battery mount built in. Uh, the battery mount is not built in on this. You have to get a separate battery mount if you want to run this on batteries. I think the reason why is you really want to plug this in. 1200 is a lot of output. You're going to suck through a lot of batteries <laughs> if you do it. I don't think this is like, there's 600. I've done a lot of work on the 600 on batteries because it's like, why, why wouldn't you? Like, oh, I just need this like half an hour little thing on the side of a street. I'll just throw up the 600 on a couple of view mounts and we'll shoot. Or like I do a lot of bike stuff on the 600 where I'll have a 600 on another bike, like shooting at a scene. The 1200 is so much. You'd just be changing batteries so often. I think it was smart that they made that an accessory. Yeah. And then I just, uh, I just talked to someone who just used this. If you guys know that crazy CRLS kit, the like the crazy reflectors, 
You guys all know Michael Haneke's DP, and I'm embarrassed that I've forgotten his name, but he's Michael Haneke's DP, has this whole thing where he lights his shoots with one big light and then all reflectors. And he uses these crazy aluminum reflectors with like custom-made textures. And they sell them now as CRLS. A bunch of my nerdy friends have them. And uh, one of them just did a shoot with the 1200 in CRLS. And they were like, oh my God, like, like just one big unit wall plugged and then a bunch of these crazy reflectors. And like, stuff looks so good. So yeah, I mean, that's tech news. In terms of like, is there a Ukraine angle? If I was assuming that power was still running in my city and I wanted to shoot some sort of invasion, this would be the best thing I could wall plug that I could put on the roof of my building and point down to keep alleys lit or to keep sort of things. You wouldn't want to point it up because that would attract air attention because it's bright. But like pointed down, properly shielded, you could actually like, you know, light up a square, light up a big alley. Stuff like that. Although, I guess, I mean, I know nothing about urban warfare, but I would say you would want to put it on the roof of a building, not shine it out your window, because that would probably attract attention to you. These are all guesses. I'm not going to do one of those Twitter threads of like, here's my advice how to attack a tank. And then everybody else is like, this advice is wrong. I don't know how to attack a tank. But I do know that this light is pretty great. And if you're just an indie filmmaker, this is like... How to attack an indie scene. I mean, it's just, it's like, it's so much output for $4,000. And like, now that it's four thousand dollars, it's going to rent for like a thing. Where even if you don't buy one, you can afford to rent them. Like it's like you know there are HMI equivalents that are going to put out roughly the same amount of light, but like an equivalent M eighteen is like a fifteen thousand dollar lighting package, and so it's obviously more expensive to rent because it's fifteen thousand dollars to buy. Whereas this is like the whole package four grand. So like even if you can't buy it, you can rent it, and I think it's I think it's going to rock. I was going to say, a glowing endorsement from Charles Hain on this new light. Yeah, I was really psyched. Color quality was good. I mean, the biggest drawback is it's heavy. It's like, this is a, if you're used to thinking of aperture as like a little thing, like I also wouldn't rig this to a bike because I think that would be <laughs> annoying for the person riding the bike. It's a big, heavy unit. Like you need a junior stand. You need like real rigging for it. It's like, it's like, that's its big and the lack of a battery plate. But other than that, like it's given great output, nice color reproduction. Do you well, know like what else is heavy, though? A generator. What? Whoa! Gen- <laughs> you're totally right. Generators are heavy. So we're really excited to have Jason here on the podcast this week because we are going to be live streaming and bringing to all of our No Film School audience a series of training videos that Jason is doing. Do you call them training videos, Jason? How do you refer to them? <laughs> <laughs> they, hi, George. Um, actually, they are uh, masterclasses. So they are live masterclasses hosted on a variety of channels. And of course, they'll be coming to your viewers directly on the No Film School YouTube channel. And it's uh, it's a series of live interactive training sessions where um, in the context of this particular series, we're really going to be covering all the fundamentals of, you know, if you're new to Premiere, how to get started, where to start, and, you know, everything from the, the, the basics of, you know, clicking new project and importing content, importing media, media types, and all the things that people deal with today with all the various ways that we can shoot and acquire content, all the way through, you know, obviously cutting different techniques for, for editing, for applying color, sound, uh, After Effects integration, integration overall with all the tools in Creative Cloud, and kind of painting, a you know, an overall picture of how the the uh, Creative Cloud ecosystem works for the editor and how you can take advantage of all of those things all So it's really a soup place. to nuts <laughs> video editing through Premiere Masterclass. It'll take people from the moment they open the program to like exporting their finished product or doing DLs. 
that is the plan over a, over a series of, of weeks. Yes. So yes, we won't, we won't tackle everything <laughs> in one, in one, in one uh, <laughs> setting, but yes, that would be, uh, maybe if we put it on 2x speed, we could do that. But yes, really, really soup to nuts. And again, the nice thing about this is we get to present, you know, again, for those ju- sort of coming to premiere or maybe moving from another NLE, some of the more nuanced new things that are, you know, constantly introduced or updated in Premiere as a result of it being, you know, a cloud-based agile type app these days. So there's always little little nuggets of greatness, little little features that are maybe not uh, worthy of a, you know, of a trumpeted blast of announcement, but are nonetheless super important and uh, in a lot of cases really add another level of efficiency for the editor or somebody who's kind of working inside of Premiere, After Effects, Photoshop, what have you. So, yeah, we're really going to cover a lot of that stuff and, you know, talk about um, everything from even things like uh, recently we acquired Frame.io. So we'll probably have a whole section on collaboration and sharing and, you know, prepping for uh, social content and, you know, uh, other fun things, you know, building GIFs, uh, you know, and introducing a lot of the other new applications and services that have cropped up over the last couple of months and will continue to crop up during this series. I'll try and hit as many of them as I can. So I used to be incredibly intimidated by the thought of editing and and I learned over the course of the pandemic is when I first was able to experience Premiere. And and I learned so much and I learned by watching YouTube videos. And and so I have to say the tutorial method was great for me as sort of like a self-paced, self-taught thing. And um, so mm-hmm. big fan. And as Charles actually was my editing teacher in the film school that I dropped out of. Um, <laughs> So did you drop he, out because of Charles? Uh, Beyond, yes, <laughs> Charles, you are not the reason I dropped out. You actually were such a good teacher in teaching the basics of editing. And as a director, I can't believe I ever directed without knowing how to edit. That's insane to me. And oh, yeah. um, <laughs> every director has to edit. That is a huge endorsement, by the way, secretly without you doing it on purpose of what this is offering. Because <laughs> even if you don't think you're an editor, there is a lot of value in going through the entire process and knowing how everything integrates. If you're a producer, there's a value in knowing it because then you're going to know what the people you're working with are talking about and what exactly. they need and why they're doing the things they're doing and how they might be able to do them differently. So I, I also just wanted to point out, Jason, that the other cool thing about this is because it's like it's updated and you're completely up to speed through Adobe on everything new and how it works. So even if you know how to do everything, mm-hmm. there's a value in doing this because you're going to know how to do it now in an updated, upgraded way. Absolutely. That you maybe a lot of times we get stuck yeah. in the like, well, I learned this way and I'm still doing it this way because this was the version that I started on. As yes. opposed to how it's all going <laughs> right. now. Yep. And that's, again, that's one of the benefits of it being live is that we have, you know, there'll be a live interactive chat and it's, it's not just I'm here to present and I'll talk for 50 minutes and a chat, you know, people are talking amongst themselves. No, I'm, I'm also reading it simultaneously. So, you know, if you have questions, great example of what you just sort of, uh, uh, described there. Oh, I've been doing, you know, multicam cutting this way since whatever, you know, mm-hmm. C- CS6, where you can go way back. There've been some changes. Oh, you can do these how is it different? Or maybe am I doing it? You know, you can ask those questions. And that's sort of the nice thing about this is it it's interactive. And of course, it's archived. So people can always go back and watch it again. And we're soliciting, you know, a lot of the things that I am showing 
not only do they sort of conform to that, yes, getting started soup to nuts idea, but a lot of it is just solicited via Twitter, YouTube, Facebook comments that we receive on the daily, right? So people just asking, oh, there's like, we've been promoting a brand new import export experience in the beta of Premiere Pro, which all Creative Cloud members actually have access to. It's a separate installation of Premiere, but you can, you can test it out today. Um, this is something which will eventually be coming into the main product, but things like that, where we can talk about changes on the horizon. Um, there's just so much newness and talking about those nuanced differences of how people did it before and what's available now. The betas in general are something that a lot of people don't know about. And it used to be, and I'm sure all of you could probably attest to this, you know, if you remember back in the day, if you joined a beta program, you had certain requirements, right? You had to, you know, do X number of bug reports. Maybe you didn't do them, but there was kind of an expectation that you were going to participate and uh, contribute. Well, you can still do that, but now the betas of all of the video applications, and this includes Premiere, After Effects, Audition, Media Encoder, Character Animator, these can be accessed by any Creative Cloud member. There's always stuff being developed and added to the betas almost every day. And from within the beta, you can now, instead of going to a forum or somewhere else, you can actually send your feedback, send your commentary directly inside of the app. And that goes right in front of our engineers. So not only do you have, you know, this ability to see sort of what we're working on in the labs, so to speak, but you can also submit your feedback in a super easy way to help us improve upon that. If you so desire, you also don't have to send any feedback and you can say that eh, I'll stick with the release version until the feature comes out, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. But there's just there's just a lot of stuff cooking all the time. And that's really going to be the benefit of this series is you're going to get to see it all as it's evolving. And again, trying to trying to kind of showcase the newness of everything that's there also with, you know, highlighting a lot of the classic capabilities of the app as well. And as far as like integrations or new ways, other stuff integrates or using like the, the cloud based tools in general, is there going to be a lot of that? You know, if you're, if you're thinking, I want to know more about After Effects, you know, or I want to know more about mixing After Effects mm -hmm. with my cuts. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, again, if we're talking specifically cloud and th there are, there, there are multiple touch points where this will sort of come to play. Yes, we'll, we'll sort of investigate that. And some of that is how sort of, say, cloud-based libraries work in the video context, right? So we have this thing called CC libraries, case in point in After Effects. We have something called motion graphics templates. I'm sure you're familiar with those. You know, you can build these beautiful, well, you can build anything in After Effects and save it to one of your CC libraries. That library, based in the cloud, is now accessible anywhere you go. So again, one of the techniques that a lot of people who are maybe new to the to the CC world, again, they could have been using After Effects for a decade, but if they never bothered to look at libraries, they wouldn't know that, oh, you can actually save commonly used lower thirds. What if you have, I'm sure NFS probably has a logo bug or something that you always write watermark your video with. Well, those animated elements, and by animated, I mean any, any level of animation that you can create in After Effects can be saved and stored in your library so if you're collaborating with an editor or if that editor is you, you open Premiere, you go to your CC library, no matter where you're logged in, and those After Effects animations are there waiting for you. You don't have to, you don't have to reopen a project, you don't have to do anything. And this is something that a lot of people are unaware of. And it really helps to be even that more efficient, whether you're collaborating or just sort of wanting access to things wherever you are. So yeah, we're going to touch on a lot of that. We're going to touch on the um, integration with After Effects, a classic technique, dynamic link, just been around forever. Hasn't changed significantly, but it's, it's better, it's faster, it's more efficient. 
probably talk about, you know, again, some of the new. And frame uh, and, and reviewing as well. That's yeah. another huge new addition, right? And I'm sure chart, like we've talked about it on this podcast before that acquisition, et cetera. Yes, absolutely. So we will talk about it. Now that'll come a little bit later, obviously. That's, you know, that's, a, <laughs> we need to start importing footage and, you know, uh, talking about all the tools panel first. But yes, there'll be a huge section on frame. And, um, and again, how frame can be used for anybody, you know, kind of to, to, I think to Gigi's point about that sort of slight intimidation with, uh, maybe this is too high level or I'm, I'm not making movies. Do I need this? Do I need something like this for commentary or review or markup? Well, yeah, if you work with anyone and you want to solicit any kind of <laughs> feedback on your work, right? It makes sense that you should have a, you know, a, a concrete way of one, sharing, two, soliciting feedback, three, getting that feedback and then being able to see it in the context of your timeline so that you can make change. I mean, it's, it's a huge, huge benefit regardless of the kind of stuff you're doing. I've, I've hipped my, my, my teenager to it you know, he's not a filmmaker, but he makes YouTube videos with oh, friends. Exactly. Yes. Right. I was going to yeah. say, there's a whole uh, aspect of the value here that's beyond, we often say content, but like people who just want to do something with the stuff they're creating, you know, that's exactly. not necessarily editing a feature film. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. And it's, and that's the thing too, is not only is it accessible to you, right? Whether you're doing YouTube or TikTok videos or whatever, but it's also the, the, the learning curve to, to using this is, is not steep at all. You know, and again, that's one of those things where let's, let's break the fear here. It's, you know, if you know a little bit, it goes a long way. And what's really nice about the frame product in particular is that their sort of sharing and collaboration methods, or I should say the, the sort of UI UX of how that all works is very similar nay, almost, almost the same to the way we've already been doing it with, again, like Photoshop and other applications where you've already been able to sort of share cloud documents and things. It's going to look and feel familiar, even if you're coming from somewhere out of video. So I think this is another great benefit to the users because they're going to go, oh, okay. Yep, that makes sense. Oh, this little ellipsis, here's more options. Oh, okay. Oh, right. I just add email addresses. It's, you know, it doesn't take a long time to learn. It's super easy to do. And the more you do it, you realize, how did I, how did I get on without it before? You know? <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. In, it's intuitive in that. So I also, last summer when I was, or last year when I was learning to edit for the first time, and we were also using Frame.io because the film school I dropped out of had a <laughs> free uh, account. And, and it was critical, especially when I was in that learning phase to be pressure testing moments and story and basically the entire short that I was working on. And right. we, we used Frame.io and it allowed me to receive that feedback in, in a way that really made sense. And what I was doing before was embarrassing, like sending people files, having them write out time code. I mean, it was <laughs> archaic. And I think that I'm sure that when people are taking this masterclass, they'll have these like, you know, moments of, of like light bulbs popping above their head where they're like, oh my gosh, this is going to make this so much easier and so right. much nicer and so much clearer. Right. It'll be very satisfying. I, I love that, Gigi. And that, that's the thing is that's, I mean, it's not that archaic in the sense that yeah, I'll be, even I was doing that not so long ago. I mean, <laughs> okay. You know, that makes me feel a little better. I mean, frame is part of the family now, you know, prior to it, I would use it when I was involved with other projects with people who used frame, you know, I was kind of doing it old school, same. I wasn't quite putting, you know, into writing time code in text documents <laughs> that goes back. That, that's, 
That is pretty old school. I was doing that. Sending it as a separate Microsoft Office file. Yes, yes. I wasn't that bad. I wasn't that bad. But I do have to say, my dad, I ask him for notes on some things sometimes. Like an essay application. I'll send him the Google Doc. He'll print it out. He'll write by hand well, the notes and then he will, he'll scan it and send it back to me. And That's he just, funny. it's, it's his method. But I think, you know, if there's, he would love Frame.io if he were an editor, but he's not. He's also right. works in print. So oh, I that, think that, he's a little biased. And I'll tell you what. I was really is. hoping he was going to handwrite them, put them in an envelope <laughs> and mail them. And send them <laughs> right. to me by Carrier oh, no. Pigeon. Carry a pigeon. Well, that's the thing too. Something that uh, you know, I, I actually just showed Frame this past week. We did kind of an overview with one of the Frame people, who's now part of Adobe. And um, one of the things we talked about is, which many people are unaware of because it's been so tied to obviously video and high end video. You can actually use the same commenting, review, markup process on still on imagery as well. So you could you could use it for that purpose. Oh. People just write, but it's. Everyone's like, oh, it must be for movies. I can't do it with this. No, no, no. It supports all of that too. So, um, or at least to some degree. So it's going to be exciting. It's going to be really cool to go through these things. And again, I really invite your um, your viewers to to bring questions. I mean, obviously we can't get to all of them uh, in a 57 minute time frame, but I'll give lots of other ways that where people can reach out. Of course, we've got tons of resources and you have so many resources. And, you know, I'm really excited to just, uh, again, revisit this over the couple of over the last few years, we've done a few series of sort of A to Z getting started, you know, where it really just covers everything across typically premiere after effects and audition. And uh, this will be very similar, but a, a bit more targeted and also um, opening up just to kind of new, new formats of, of video delivery. If there's anything that we've learned from the pandemic, it's that truly everyone now, whether they want to or not, is probably making some kind of video, whether for their, you know, for social purposes or for their business. And we're just going to show you some of the, um, I don't like to say best practices, but some good, really good practices to make that content and get it out and share it with the world. So the other really exciting thing about this, we're going to talk about where everyone will be able to find it, but there will be, and we don't have all the details yet. You will have the ability to get Premiere certified as a result of attending this masterclass. Yes. This is super exciting, and uh, I've been talking a lot with my colleagues about this. We've been working on, again, sort of updating the certification requirements. So again, you're sort of, you're in Premiere Pro 2022. All the stuff that we're going to be showing is allowing you to sort of work towards that goal using the latest and greatest updates of everything, and we're super excited to be bringing that. And initially, this is kind of the exclusive first pass where people will have access to do this through No Film School. So this is very, very exciting stuff. Yeah, so be sure to stay in the loop with No Film School because as we begin to offer it, we will also offer all the information you need for how you can become certified through taking the masterclass. And Jason, where is everyone going to be able to find it? We're going to have it on our YouTube channel. We're likely going to also have it on our Facebook. Where else? Yeah, so uh, all of my live streams are multicast, so they'll be able to watch it, yes, on your native channels, as well as uh, on Adobe Live, on Behance, on the Adobe Creative Cloud YouTube channel, possibly on Twitter as well. So no no fewer than five or six destinations. Um, obviously, we want to drive as many as we can to, uh, to no film school. But of course, uh, not everybody's always there in that moment. Um, and of course, the replays will be available you know, immediately after we stop these streams. So lots of opportunities, lots of places to watch um, and uh, giving everybody access wherever you are. 
Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, Jason, and talking to us about it. Of course, thank you for doing this. I'm really excited about it. It's something that I'm very proud that No Film School is going to be able to offer to our readers and and provide them with. So we're, we're thrilled. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, George. Thanks for having me on. Our last subject this week, we saved the drama for the end. The Academy Awards are moving all of the good categories out of the broadcast. I mean, not all of the good categories, but like some bold moves. So these eight categories are no longer going to be in the live broadcast. They're going to get awarded earlier in the day. Documentary short, film editing, makeup and hairstyling, score, production design, animated short, live action short, and sound. So before we even get to how crazy this is, I'm still annoyed they combined sound editing and sound mixing into one category of sound because they are two tasks done by two different people at two different stages in the process and they are different things. We yeah, still just, need a color grading category. Anyway, now we can bitch I, about this. I have to jump I, I I have to jump in immediately. This has been a big topic for me this week because I I've been outspoken over and over again on this podcast and all around the world and to everyone who's ever met me that I dislike the Academy Awards on principle. However, I've also come around to a certain degree that there's a lot of value. I've mentioned that a few times. I've learned that, you know, it shines a light on films that might not, not otherwise be seen. And it mm -hmm. certainly has the potential to shine a light on people and their work that don't otherwise get seen. Like, not actors and directors, right? Well, so much for that, because this announcement makes it really feel like they want to, pardon the expression, but like dumb it down even more for the sake of a television show. And I tweeted, I reply tweeted to Variety, right, as this was announced, when it was announced. I said, wow, it's almost like the Oscars aren't really about honoring quality filmmaking and are just about celebrities and PR, being a little snarky and sarcastic. That tweet went viral for me with 22,000 likes and like mm -hmm. a thousand retweets, something I did not see coming. But I think it highlights, not tooting my own horn here, but I think it, because it's, look, I feel like I've tweeted better stuff before, but I think at the moment it highlighted that people are just beside themselves with how insulting this is. I had the lead sound editors and designers from Dune on as an interview right before this, uh, for this podcast, right before this news happened. It will still come out this month. They, were, they are nominated for Academy Awards for absolutely incredible work on the sound of Dune. And I didn't even know, even though I appreciated the work they did, I didn't even know what goes into it. The levels, the dedication, the creativeness, the, the time, I mean, and the size of their team. And for that to be shunted aside in something that ostensibly is about honoring and respecting the filmmaking craft, it is such a slap in the face. I don't even want to get into the editing stuff, the cinematography. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, I don't even want to touch production design. I literally just talking about sound because Charles brought it up. These people do amazing work. The movies you see and enjoy cannot be seen and enjoyed and appreciated. They would flat out suck. I'm not just <laughs> like, they really would. If you've ever yeah. watched Star Wars, Charles has, because he went to USC, they do this thing where they show you Star Wars with its, you know, uh, production sound. It's ridiculous. 
Like, that's not a good movie. Like, you can't make, it just doesn't work. Like, it's crappy. Like, there's nothing else to it. And I think that that is just, again, it's just, uh, it's, 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 I'm old man ranting, but I'm, I'm very disappointed. I know I shouldn't be, but I started coming around, right? And they got me. They got me again. Well, as a, I, I'm young person ranting, if I can give myself that title, because it is the, the first mistake you make if you are even trying to be a filmmaker is messing up your sound. And then from that point on, hopefully you learn the lesson. It is worth investing in sound. It's sight and sound. And I mean, all these categories that are being left off, it it makes me feel sad about the lack of respect. And, and you know, even in the United States, I don't think we create enough space to celebrate short films. And this is one of those few things you can look forward to when you're trying to figure out your path as an independent filmmaker. Like, this could be the way. And yeah, it's, it's such a great point, and such a, especially, such a great point, especially for this audience. So many people in our audience get excited about the short films and what's going to be nominated and, and as a route and an avenue, another way to be seen. And it's just another way people who are trying to make it in a very difficult, crowded industry are being pushed away from opportunity and visibility. I mean, I personally know two people who've won Best Short and one person who's been nominated for Best Short, and it helped all of their careers. It absolutely did. Like, it has led to different opportunities. And will that still be the same? Like, because, you know, remember, if nothing else, the industry watches the Academy Awards. So if that's televised, there's an opportunity there for a younger filmmaker or, in one case, one of the people I know in it, it was still in their 40s, and like many people in their 40s and even 50s win Best Short. Like, there's an opportunity there for like people from the industry to be like, to tell their assistant, oh, hey, get me a copy of that. I want to see that. I want to have a meeting with them if I like it, yada, yada, which is like that opportunity is going to now disappear for all of those people because the industry is not going to watch the unbroadcasted earlier thing. They're just not. How can we support these, the people in these categories that are being not included in the live broadcast like what is the best way to let them know that they're that we're happy for them and how do we how do we support them if we're not in the academy i mean here's the thing in the end i like i'm not anti the academy awards because i like what they've tried to adapt to we should always remember that the academy awards were deliberately created in order to get people fighting with each other so that they wouldn't fight with bosses like louis b mayer started the academy awards because he was like, oh, if actors are trying to win awards, they're not going to fight me for money, which is like been probably true. So like I, as someone who believes strongly in solidarity, I love the idea of finding another way to support people's work without it being a competition for a winner. Because I think like collaborative groups tend to achieve more in the world than individual heroes. And I think the Academy Awards sort of perpetuates that. But I think Academy Awards have been trying really hard to find a way to continue to stay relevant, diversify, diversify their picks. I mean, I think a lot of people saw the wonderful Korean film whose name escapes me. Oh, Parasite? Oh, Par- Parasite, yeah. sorry. Okay. Um, I mean, I think that, so a whole, a whole lot of people saw Parasite who would never have seen Parasite without the Academy Awards. Yeah. Like, I would have ended up seeing it, but a tremendous number of people wouldn't have seen Moonlight, wouldn't have seen Minari, wouldn't have seen, like, there are so many great films that get attention. And I think the Academy Awards have really taken it seriously, th- this idea of like, okay, well, we're going to try and then help 
promote the things that we think are good and get that an audience. One thing we've talked a lot about on here is that the Academy Awards recognizes that they're having a harder, you know, for 50 or so years, they had an audience where they were like, well, we can take this attention and give it to people. I think in the last couple of years, they've really started to accept of like, oh, we don't have guaranteed attention anymore. We are not promised attention anymore. And they're trying to find a way to keep that attention back. So like, the more I think about it, like I'm annoyed they had to cut all of these, but it, it doesn't strike me. I don't think the people in the Academy really think movies don't deserve, like production designers are in the Academy. Like I think there's people who understand what's going on within it. I, I don't want to say sinking ship, but like as your audience dwindles, you, I think they revert back to like, well, what's our <clears> mission? <throat> our mission is, is to promote the overall movies that we like. And if we're going to keep doing that, we probably need a slimmer show to keep getting eyeballs. And like, if I were them, I don't know that I would have made a rat. Like, I'm annoyed by their decision, but I get it. And I don't know that I would have made a different one because their real tool is best director, best actor, best actress, and best picture. Those are the ones that actually drive traffic to interesting movies. And so if this cutting all these means, you know, more people see drive my car, like maybe that's their only move. Yeah. I mean, I love that we're talking about the counterpoint and that you're making mm -hmm. that argument. I would just say the following and it applies to the culture at large. It even applies to running a website like nofilmschool.com where we write headlines and we know that 80% of people don't read more than a headline, which is part of what the whole Buzzfeed phenomena is, right? The whole cult culture has momentum. So if as attention spans get shorter and we realize it's harder to get people's attentions, we feed the beast. Like we throw coal into that engine and we're like, well, we have to go even faster. We have to accept and acknowledge that this is a fact and that people only want to see Spider-Man and not any of the movies like they don't necessarily want to see Nomadland. And so we will highlight that and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a slippery For some story. reason, this and is it, really making me feel like you're my J. Jonah Jameson. Like, you've got <laughs> kind of the vibe. You were like, people only want to see Spider-Man. Like, it was a real yeah. moment there. Yes. But the thing is, you have to... God, what a meta aspect to all of J.J. Anyway, um, extremely meta. But anyway, the point is that you can either be part of that momentum or you can try and shift it. And there are clever ways, I believe, that you can try and shift it by using those tools. For example, yes, we know, all of us, no matter how elitist we think we are in terms of our tastes, we see certain names above the title, that's a movie we will go see. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, like, we're not seeing a movie for its sound design. We know that, right? No, not even me. However, you use those tools to get that, like, you... you the thing, there's a symbiotic relationship there. And so if you're, if you're making the Academy Awards show and you're talking about like, we want to serve broccoli along with the steak. We can't just feed people steak. If we keep feeding people steak, eventually we're just feeding people hamburger meat. Like, right? It's mm -hmm. going to keep going. If you want to be part of the solution and not a part of the problem, you say, what's the best way to cook broccoli that goes with steak? Like, how do we use the steak to get people in the door? and have a side of broccoli that makes them appreciate that this is the art of what it is. And so it frustrates me, though I can certainly appreciate the challenge as a person who faces it myself. But if you're going to write a 
21 Reasons Why Every Trainer Hates Him article, please deliver, right? Like, so I know the, the struggle is real. I know it from where I work. But I do think you have to try and use those tools. You have stars, right? You have best picture and best director. And there is a way to craft it that is also a value add to the experience that helps people to appreciate all the things that make your industry great that are not as surface as celebrity. So to me, they are actually damaging themselves by not involving serving a side of broccoli, essentially. We got to eat our greens. Yeah, and if they don't, they they can't survive. They'll die. (laughs) The trick of adulthood is like, I've used this example on the podcast many times in the past, like anybody who doesn't like broccoli was failed by their parents because like, you know, at some point they were like, I got to feed my kid broccoli and I'm just going to steam it up. And like, that's disgusting. But like get an iron skillet, throw some salt, throw some butter, turn it brown and it's fucking delicious. And like, it's like, it's one of those things of like, what I do, I see your point, George, of my God, how awesome could it be if the Academy Awards was like, all right, we have X amount of attention left. Let's figure out how to get people excited about production designer. Let's figure out how to get, because one thing that they've not done really well in the past is given, you know, they always have the thing where the announcer says something like, a movie would be nothing without costuming. Why everybody would be naked. And then there's a laugh. And then there's a highlight reel of like five costume shots. But like the education of like what really goes into making something amazing, right? It's Um, hard work. Yeah, I agree. It's hard work. To make that apparent. Yeah. It's um, like what they're doing is they're telling, not showing. They're like, let's just have a line about how important it is. Like, well, they're not going to listen. That doesn't work. But I get it. It's hard work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's like a very tricky thing to figure out how we, I mean, it's also a tricky thing to wonder, like, it's hard to find other industries that compare to entertainment, but Indeed. it is hard to find another industry where like that much attention was given to craft people. Like at least once, mm. you know, there would all, I remember whatever year it was, Mad Max Fury Road, where like the entire internet was like in love with the costume designer from Mad Max Fury Road because she just showed up at the Oscars in like a leather jacket and everybody was like, you rule. And like, that's a nice amount. There's many other things that happen in the world where like nobody from behind the scenes ever gets a moment. Oh, yeah. No, I mean that I agree with you. And and in a lot of cases, like I do believe the reward is the work. It should be. That's a healthy way to approach life. The reward shouldn't be a a statue, a red carpet, an event in L.A. with celebs like that's fun. But like, that's not why you do it. That's not what they're doing it for, at least not if they're. They've got their heads on, head screwed on right. But like, again, like I've been to, you know, I went to a special edition Comic-Con last year, moderated a panel of people in production design, costume designers. There are a lot of folks out there in this world who just want to hear what those people have to say about their work because they love it. They want to learn about it. They want to know why it is. They want to, there's a thirst for that knowledge. There's an interest. Is that number of people... TV ratings large. No, and that's also, right, that's also part of the problem because we're out of the monoculture stage and the Oscars are a relic of monoculture. But also, beyond that, the Oscars were always a little weirdly out of touch. Like, I remember, I bring this up all the time, but like, remember the day after, you know, if you guys, like, Breaking Bad was the last big event where I lived in LA where like, literally, the final, the finale of Breaking Bad the streets of LA were silent 
I remember because I was driving to a friend's house. I was running a little late and I was like, there's no traffic. Where is everybody? And I parked and like, I looked around and like, no, because everyone was watching the finale of Breaking Right. Bad. The city shut down. I'm sure New York was the same way. And then the next day, because I used to read the trades every day, I've now let that go. Reading the trades, you know, finale of Breaking Bad had like 2.3 million viewers and a rerun of Duck Dynasty had like 7 million. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yes. It's like the Super Bowl, actually, this last year was in L.A., for those who didn't know. And I live in L.A. And we went for a walk because I didn't care. And it was the nicest and the quietest Los Angeles has ever been in my entire life. I've been here forever. So, I yeah, it's Oscars are not the Super Bowl, like newsflash. So maybe you're right. Maybe we need to course correct and be like, yes, the Oscars are only going to be about this. This is all they were ever about, which was the entire point of my tweet. There's no reason for us to expect anything different. It's just stupid. <laughs> That's all. You, you are. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, with that, where can we find everybody? I'm on the internet at charleshane.com and I'm on Twitter and Instagram at charleshane, H A I N E. There's also a BBC reporter, Charlie Haynes, who is younger and better looking and has more hair than me. So you can follow him as well. Uh, he has some good Ukraine takes. I'm at Lost in Graceland. And is it okay if I promote a little podcast workshop I'm leading? Yeah, plug yes. it. I you might am... need to take it. <laughs> oh, yes. Come join. Uh, so I am kicking off the second workshop for a Learn to Pitch Your Podcast class that I co-teach with the Caveat co-founder, Kate Downey. Caveat's a comedy science theater in New York. And um, our first workshop sold out. And um, we had a great... Uh, six-week class, um, and you can learn more about it at ggHawkins.com slash PYP, which stands for Pitch Your Podcast. And I'm George Gentleman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School, Oscar hater, <laughs> resident <laughs> Oscar hater. Uh, and you can find everything we talked about more at NoFilmSchool.com. Like us on Twitter, follow us, or follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. You don't want to confuse those actions with those platforms. Check us out on Instagram and YouTube and all the other places. And please send any questions you have to editor at nofilmschool.com. We love getting your questions. We love answering them on the show. Thanks so much for listening. 